I tell you what, God is, is moving so greatly here, but I'm going to hammer down on something today, and I'm going to make somebody out there mad. Um, okay, I get it. Take it up with the one who wrote the message, not the messenger. There's some atrociously bad teaching and preaching that's going on relative to the end of our text today. I'll get to it at the very end of the message. But it has been some of the most harmful teaching and preaching that has ever been put forth in the pulpits of our land. It's particularly prevalent 300 years ago up until, I thought up until about 50 years ago, I uh, actually met a man between services, a good friend of mine that came up and said he was taught this his entire childhood and um, I'll not name where he went to school, but it was not far from here, but said they were still using this text with an improper hermeneutic and still teaching and preaching that this divided people in a highly inappropriate way. So I didn't realize it was still being espoused in the way that it is. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you hold to the old garbage that we're going to unpack this morning, you need to throw it out and you need to come to the word of God with an open heart and an honest heart and say, Lord, what are you teaching and how can I understand it and apply it correctly? Because this was an abomination, an egregious sin in the eyes of our Lord. And I hope to put some light on it today and expose it for what it is. So that being said, we're in Genesis 9. I want you to say this verse with me. It's Genesis 9, 9. Join me. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. That's important. God speaking to Moses saying, this is for you. It's for your descendants. Was that the Jewish people? No, the Jewish people have not been developed yet. That's not for any one people group or one nation. This is for all the people. So we are these descendants. This verse is for us. God establishes a covenant with descendants. Now, I just gave you a big hint on where the blanks are going to be. Let's say it again. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. That's us. We've learned, and today we finished the, the, the flood narrative, but we've learned that a storm was brewing and to be prepared. We learned that the whole world was underwater and then that God would lift up the ark and put it high and dry, but God would not leave people high and dry. Last week and this week, we've been in a whole new world. And this is not a magic carpet ride. This is the real deal. In a post-flood world, number one, people and animals have a new relationship with one another. Number two, the value of life and the image of God receive new emphasis and understanding, meaning sin has marred and scarred the Imago Dei. It is not eliminated or obliterated the Imago Dei. So all people, that's important for this lesson today, all people throughout all the ages from all the nations, with all the different levels of melanin in their skin and all of the different socioeconomic statuses and all people of all time are special and dignified and valued in the eyes of God. And to say otherwise, you misread and misapply God's truth. Remember, time plus chance plus matter did not make this whole new world. God made it God made us, and God's going to give us some beautiful promises, and then we got to unpack some things and get them set aright today. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Somewhat quickly, I'll be reading all the rest of the chapter, picking up with verse 8, Genesis 9, 8. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living thing that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. 
Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God didn't say there won't be universal floods. God said there'll never be a, uh, God didn't say there won't be um, universal, God didn't say there won't be local floods. There will not again be a universal flood. Let me get that right. And so what is God doing? He is establishing a covenant and he said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. Watch, for perpetual generations. When does perpetual end? Doesn't. Means it's applying to us today. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth and it shall be when I bring the cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, 8 to 17 is pretty easy. There's very little disagreement about that text. It's a pretty simple thing to follow. We'll unpack it more in a moment. But this is where it gets a little janky. Verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. That's an interesting note. And there were three of the sons of, these were the three of the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. In fact, God said in the next chapter, chapter 10, the table of nations, all the nations of the earth come from these three men and their wives. And Noah began to be a farmer, much like the first person, Adam. And he planted a vineyard. And this is where it really gets upside down. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, again a note, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and they went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, cursed be Ham. Nope. Very interesting. A turn. Something unexpected. Cursed or cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may, because Shem's going to be sort of the leader here. And may God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. Remember the life expectancy of man will now start to decline quickly. And so all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and for your word. I'm personally heavy of heart today because after studying for this message, I realized that not only was this horribly mispreached and misinterpreted for many generations. But even up until our present day, there are some wicked untruths coming from this passage. And yet from your heart, it is truth without any mixture of error. And so may we see it for what it is, for what it meant to the original audience then and there, and for what it means here and now. May we apply good hermeneutics, good interpretive practice to understand the truth and then to apply that truth in our lives, for these promises are to all generations perpetually. Thank you for your promise. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you and be seated. Let's head on into verse uh, number three, okay? Point number three. In a post-flood or post-diluvian world, number three, God establishes a new covenant with Noah, his descendants, and every living creature on the earth. Remember, that goes all the way to us. The Jewish people are not born yet. The Jewish people have not been established. There is no division of nations yet. So a covenant is a formal agreement between two parties. And the principal section of a covenant is in the stipulation section, which might require something of one or both parties. In this case, the stipulations were on God, not people. It's very interesting that God cuts this first covenant. Now, there are going to be others that follow, right? This is the Noahic covenant, but then you're going to get the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. You're going to get the new covenant in Jesus's blood. So this is the first of a number of covenants. But the concept is so significant in the Bible Your Bible is really divided by the covenants because a new word or another word for covenant is testament. And so when you look at your Bible, it has 39 books that make up the old covenant, the old testament. It has 27 books that make up the new covenant, the new testament. And Jesus is not obliterating the old. Jesus is in fact fulfilling the old. You don't unhitch them. You don't pull old from new. It is why I preach both in old and new testaments or old and new covenants. This one, old, cannot rightly be understood without this one, new. And this one, new, cannot rightly be understood without this one, old. They are both incredibly significant and all of it, Genesis to Revelation, is the word of God. And so covenants of old could be between two equal parties, or between a greater and a lesser party. For example, a king would make a covenant with his subjects. The king would promise certain protections and the subject would promise fealty or loyalty to the king. A covenant might be conditional or unconditional. There are many covenants in the Bible that are conditional covenants. Do you realize God is making a covenant with us? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, there is a covenant. It is conditional. It is conditioned upon your acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. Jesus died for your sin. He died in your place. Jesus paid your sin debt, but you are not receiving the blessing of the covenant unless you receive that gift on your behalf. You must say yes, and by grace through faith, trust Jesus in this new covenant. Unlike the later covenant with Abraham and those that build on the covenant of Abraham, this covenant does not entail election or a new phase of revelation, and it's made with every living creature. This is not just a covenant for human beings. This is a covenant for animal kind. God says, I will never destroy the earth again with a universal, a worldwide flood. We know there have been and will be until the end of the age localized floods. We know that people and animals will be killed by such, but God said, this is a new covenant. And it's emphatic in the Hebrew instruction, construction. What I mean by that is verse nine. God said, now I, behold, I am establishing my covenant. The covenant obligation rests with the Lord alone. Verse 11, never again Will I destroy the earth with a flood? He says it twice, never again. God wants us to get it. I've done this, but it'll never, ever happen this way again. And I'm going to give you a sign. A sign is that which points beyond itself and therefore requires interpretation. All signs require interpretation. I promise you there are places in the world today that if I held up my left hand and I showed them my ring, they would not know what this meant. 
In fact, dear friends of mine that have done missions on the Amazon River for many, many years, and I've been able to serve there a number of times, said that the people, the Indians on the river, and yes, they call themselves Indians, the indigenous peoples of the Amazonian basin had no idea what this sign meant. You all know what it means. In fact, Holly and Garrett, right down here with Garrett's dear mother in town, they are putting rings on one another's fingers this coming Saturday. You better pray for their daddy that's officiating the ceremony, okay? I'm just going to say it. I've written it, and Garrett, I hope you make it through, my friend. Okay, so uh, the sign of the covenant is a beautiful sign. Baptism is a beautiful sign. That's why we do it after salvation by immersion. It is a sign. Yes, I've trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and now I identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. It'd be foolish to put this ring on your left uh, ring finger if you were not married, unless it was a promise ring or something else. But it's a sign that there's a covenant made, a covenant between me and between my wife and between God. It's a three-way covenant. And so here there's a beautiful sign. Let me give you another example. They mean something, but they need interpretation. The rainbow means something, but it needs interpretation. I'm going to give you a picture. It's a, it's a cloth. It's rectangular. It has 13 stripes. They are red and they are white. There is a blue box and it has 50 white stars, children only in the room. What is that a sign of? What did I just describe? Thank you very much. I don't have $100 bills to hand out, I'm sorry. But it is the American flag, okay? And the American flag, you know what those 13 stripes stand for, right? You better, the 13 American colonies. You know what those 50 stars stand for, right? And even the colors mean something. That's why it is an abomination to desecrate the flag. It stands for something far greater than the cloth. It is a sign and is a symbol of the great nation America. And so while our land has had many issues, one of which I'll speak to at the conclusion today, this is a good land, a land that has been blessed. And the reality is signs matter. Now look what happens in 13, 14, 15, especially 15. God said, I set my rainbow in the cloud and my rainbow will be the sign of the covenant. And it shall be that when I bring the cloud on the earth, the rainbow shall be in the cloud. Now look, it doesn't say, and you will remember my covenant. No, it says, and I will remember my covenant. The rainbow is set primarily as a reminder to God. Now remember, when God remembers, doesn't mean he forgot. It means it's right at the front of the mind. It's put like frontlets. It's right up front. So when God says, I remember, he says, I'm putting it right here. He never forgets. But when the rainbow comes, be assured, God is saying to us, I will never destroy the earth in this way Again, So God initiates and sustains and completes the covenant. He signs it in the heavens. I love what Martin Luther once said. The great reformer said, we too need this comfort today in order that despite a great variety of stormy weather, we may have no doubt that the sluice gates of heaven, the water gates of heaven, and the fountains of the deep have been closed by the word of God. Luther says, yes, there are many storms, and yes, sometimes it looks like the rains, figuratively or literally, will never end. But the sluice gates of heaven above and the fountains of the deep, all of that is closed by the word of God. And when you look to the heavens, folks, you ought to remember this. When I see a rainbow, it is a sign and it is a symbol and it is a remembrance of both God's sternness and his kindness. God hates sin 
He destroyed this earth once because of it. His son was crucified because of it. And yet in God's kindness, in his mercy, in his chesed, in his infinite love and loyalty, God gives us another chance. And it's for all peoples. Verse 16 says it is an everlasting covenant. It is a perpetual covenant for everybody, everywhere. The brightly colored bow in the sky reminds us we will not be destroyed in such manner again. What does it say? So what? So what, pastor? What does it mean in 2023? God will never give up on humanity since he has an eternal plan and place for us. And when you read the old covenant, the old Testament and the new covenant, the new Testament, what you see is Jesus promising, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also. And it's very interesting in Revelation when we catch glimpses of glory, glimpses of heaven, it's a very colorful place. It's rainbow-like, if you will, in heaven. And when does the rainbow most often appear? After the storm, after the rain. Now, I know you'll see it every so often when it hasn't been storming or raining, but for the most part in our own lives, when we need a sign of God's love and remembrance most, is often through and just after the rain. Can I add one more truth before we move on? Don't get all bent out of shape if other groups try to claim the rainbow for other purposes, particularly those who do not align with the word of God. Listen to me, now listen. God designed the rainbow, God alone gets to define the rainbow. You follow me right now? God designed marriage. God gets to define marriage. People came to me in droves in 2015. Pastor, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Marriage has been redefined. What do we as Christians do? And I'm like, what, what you worried about? God designed that. God defines that. And the day the government tells me I have to go outside of the bounds of God's law, get your casseroles ready and come visit me at the jailhouse because it ain't going to happen. God designed it. God defines it. Do y'all follow me this morning? Y'all understand what I'm saying today? So don't get all bent out of shape. Everybody's like, well, they've taken the rainbow. Look at what they've done. Number one, for many, many, many years, the rainbow of the LGBTQI plus community actually was not a seven color rainbow as God designed it, was a six color rainbow. Chew on that for a minute. Okay, we'll not get into numerology. But the point is this, it's not the same. Don't get all bent out of shape. I can't believe they took our rainbow. No, the people can only take what you give them, and we don't give it away. Okay, so God establishes a new covenant with Noah, his descendants, and every living creature on earth. That wasn't the part designed to make people mad, though it will. Congratulations. People still stumble in this new world, and the consequences of our choices may last many generations. I really want you to unpack this with me now. Uh, New American Standard Bible of James 3.2 says it like this, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, for instance, he is a perfect man, able to rein in the whole body as well. What that means is, of course you can't speak perfectly, nor can I. And so everybody's in this together. We all sin. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And so when we look at Noah, this just and righteous and holy man, he stumbled. And there's so much that could be said here. I could bring you three or four sermons from the next text, but I'm gonna get it in one. Look at 18. Now the sons of Noah who were out of the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Why is that so important? Okay, Noah lives many years before Moses. 
But Moses is the one chosen to write down God's revelation of these events. He creates what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so in penning that, the Israelite peoples, the Hebrews, the Jews have been birthed. The nation is being birthed. Their greatest enemy will be those who currently or then at that time occupied what God created for them as the promised land. It was promised to them. It was known as the land of the Canaanites, not the Hamites, the Canaanites. The Canaan was a son of Ham, one of many, by the way, but he was a son of Ham. And so what Moses is doing is he's speaking to his audience. Don't get all bent out of shape here. He's simply saying the next section is going to explain some things about Canaan and how he acted in the line of his father. It's very important here. And all people who have ever lived after the flood came from the three sons of Noah and their wives. All of the nations were born through them. That's why we call chapter 10 the table of nations. In fact, the descendants of Shem were called Shemites. One of their greatest leaders was named Abram. God renamed him Abraham. We will unpack his story in the coming months. And Abraham becomes father of the three great monotheistic religions of the world. From Abram, you get Judaism, you get Christianity, and you even get Islam. Although one of those is fulfilled in the Old and New Covenants, the Old and New Testaments, two of those, one is still waiting for fulfillment, the other took a sharp turn away from what God was actually doing in the establishment of a true faith. And so here's what we get to. We get the Shemites, we get the Japhethites, and we get the Canaanites or the Hamites, if you will, but they're rarely referred to in that way. So what in the world is going on here in 20 and 21? There are new relationships, new assurances, new things in the new world, but the same old human heart. Did you see it? Look at it with me. Noah began to be a farmer and planted a vineyard and drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered, naked, unclothed is the Hebrew there, in his tent. What's happening here? Well, what the Bible says on the subject of strong drink and drunkenness definitely should be studied and we should strongly consider what the Word says. It's brought a lot of heartache and death, but let's be honest, the text does not linger on the drunkenness of Noah, nor will I. But what the text does focus on is the response of his three sons. Quickly, was Noah wrong? Yes. Did Noah lose control? Apparently. Did he even know he was going to get drunk? Some scholars have said he had no idea. I'm here to submit this. When he kept on sipping on the wine and the tent started spinning around him, he probably ought to know he should have stopped, okay? Something was going on. There are a lot of arguments why he was not culpable. I believe he was, but he's naked in his tent. He's exposed, and in antiquity, even today it should be shameful. It rarely is, but in antiquity, it was a very, very shameful thing to be exposed. Remember, God himself had covered our parents, had covered, hello, our forefathers. So that wasn't a seizure I was having, right? That was in the room. Okay. So what are we finding here? Well, here's something interesting. God doesn't dwell on Noah's drunkenness, but watch. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. It says he went outside and he told his brothers. Does it say he made any effort to cover his father? No. It says he went and spread the shame of his father. Now I know, listen, sometimes we as Christians, 
We come upon something and we realize, oh, that's terrible. And rather than doing something about it to cover the shame and to cover the sin, you know what we want to do? Can you believe that such and such did that? And rather than covering it for our brother or our sister, you know what we do? We kick them while they're down. We expose their sin and we expose their shame. I'm not saying that we hide sin under a rug. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we never expose sin, but this was shameful to his father. He brought shame and reproach and his brothers acted totally differently. In fact, they will be rewarded. Before I unpack that further though, Noah and Adam have a lot of interesting parallels. Number one, they both work the land. Number two, they both receive cursing and blessing. Number three, they have problems with their children, even to the point of fratricide, because there's going to be infighting and there's going to be problems between the Hamites or the Canaanites and the Shemites and the Japhethites. There's going to be problems for generations. In fact, listen, all the way to 2023, there are going to be problems here and issues here. And Noah, much like Adam, received divine blessing, but they are both the father of some corrupt seed. Now, when Noah awoke, he knew what had happened. How did he know? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me. Maybe he had special revelation. Maybe he asked some questions. Maybe even in a drunken stupor, he had some sense of memory about what had happened. I don't know. Maybe he woke up briefly and heard his son Ham talking about him or maybe even laughing about him. I don't know. But why in the world does Noah say what he says in 25? Watch. Cursed be... What's the next word in your Bible? Why is it not ham? Why is it not ham? Remember, he's writing for a specific audience. And Noah is making a declaration. You have disrespected and disregarded and shamed your father. Now the punishment will be on your son. And what we find is that Canaan and those who follow him would very much act like they were of their forefather Ham. They would be a shameful people, a people that would bring much reproach upon the name of the one true and living God. They would reject God. They would become pagans. They would despise their father in heaven and God through Israel would judge them. God would take back the land of promise. God would cause the Canaanites to go into servitude. But what should a son do? Well, what did Shem and Japheth do? Guys, they put a garment upon their shoulder. They walked backwards. They did not want to see their father's nakedness. They covered him and they removed themselves from that place. And I struggled thinking, how can I possibly illustrate this? And all I could really think of was just over six years ago, there in the hospital for the last week of my daddy's life until he moved to a hospice home for two days. At the end of a battle of early onset Alzheimer's, they no longer allow you to put people in restraints, but I would stay with my father each night. Mom was just worn down. And so I would stay with him all day or most of the day, but all through the night. And my dad was so gone of mind at that point that he continually tried to rip the IVs out and a catheter. And my father just over and over, it had to have been thousands of times, but he would take the sheet back and he would take his gown back. And it's, it's never pleasant to be the son that has to just keep covering your dad. But listen, why did I cover my father? Because I respect my father. I covered my father's nakedness over and over and over because I didn't want anybody to walk in the door. I didn't want Cindy to come in. I don't want one of his grandkids to come in. 
Man, I didn't even want the nurses there. I know they've seen it all, but I, I wanted to cover my father. And there were even times where I felt like, I'm tired of this. Dad, I just want to roll over and sleep a little bit. But you, you can't talk to someone whose mind is not there anymore. And so you, you do what you do because the Bible says, honor thy father and thy mother and the days will be long upon the earth. It's the fifth commandment God gives us. Honor your father and your mother. And it was shameful to look at his father's nakedness and then to go talk about it. It's shameful to spread the sins of others. And so what we find here is that a good son wants to cover the father. And so what, pastor? What does it mean for me? As people of God, we must learn to act and react or better respond beyond the present moment and circumstances. And we all struggle with this. I certainly do. My tendency is just like yours. When there's a problem, I want to rubberneck and see it. I want to see what's going on. Hey, man, give me the juice. Give me, if it's a car wreck, whatever it is, I want to see it. If it's sin, let me read about that. Even the tendency toward gossip. We all struggle with these things. But as I was discussing this with Pastor Frank, I always go over my outline with him early because he teaches a class based on my text of the day. And as he's teaching now, Ham, uh, Frank said something interesting. Pastor Frank said, quote, Ham didn't act according to who he was as Noah's son. He reacted according to how he felt. In other words, <laughs> look at the old man. Look at that. Hey, come here, boys. You got to check this out. But his son and all of their sons would ultimately pay the price. Now, theologically, I will admit to you, we are challenged. How can Canaan be punished for the sin of his father? Mosaic law makes it clear that a punishment is for a person, not their son, not their father. Deuteronomy 24, 16. However, in the very list of God's top 10 commandments, um, Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, God says, I may visit the punishment of the father, I may give punishment from the father's sins on the third and fourth generation. So there's this tension in the Bible. You stand for your own sin, but I may visit the punishment of your father on your generation and on the generation after and the generation after. What are some examples of that? David sinned with Bathsheba, right? And not only did he have her husband killed, who died as a result of their sinful adulterous union? The infant, the infant paid the price. You say, I can't believe that. Well, what about when people do drugs today? What about if a woman continues to do drugs while pregnant? Does that baby get affected? Of course that baby gets affected. So don't tell me that sin and punishment are always just for that per person. Listen, I've known drunk drivers that have killed dear friends, people that I love. One of my best friends in school, just a few years after high school, was killed by a drunk driver in California, stepped off the curb and they... They uh, killed him. I would argue he wasn't doing anything there, but sin has consequences. And sometimes there's familial or generational curse. Now be careful, don't over push that. But sometimes the tendencies of the father, addiction or otherwise, the tendencies of the father get passed down to the children. And of course, I mean father and mother. But when Noah discovered Ham had been indiscreet, he uttered a curse on Canaan. And he blessed Shem and Japheth. Now, it's interesting because some time has passed since they got off the ark, right? Because there were no grandkids on the ark. So clearly years have gone by and now there's an extension of family. We don't know how many years. We don't know how long. But in the biblical uh, material, the patriarchal pronouncement generally concerns the destiny of sons. 
Not just the man, but his sons with regard to fertility of ground, fertility of family and relationships between family members. And so these brothers are going to raise up three nations and there's going to be tensions and conflict and problems. Lying behind this is the ancient concept of corporate personality because of the the unity of father and son. The character of the father is anticipated in the deeds of the son. And because of parental influence of father and or mother, future generations often commit the same acts. That's why we say it's a chain. Are you enslaved generationally? Well, my father was an alcoholic and his father was an alcoholic. But you know what happens? We've got to be the generation that breaks chains. We've got to be a generation that says, no, I'll not go down that path. And so we've got to be the ones that say, listen, if you believe that the challenges of your family have led to uh, chains enslaving you, you've got to be the one that says, I'm gonna go to the chain breaker. His name is Jesus Christ and he's gonna change my life and he's gonna change my future. You can be the chain breaker for your family, but you're not gonna do it alone. You're going to have to come to Jesus to be a chain breaker. You're going to have to get saved and get sanctified and get set on the right track. Because see, what we're learning here is that in this indiscretion, it's not necessarily the cause for the curse. It's the occasion of the curse. And we don't know if some time passed between Noah saying this. And it's a curse from Noah, by the way, not from the mouth of God, from the mouth of Noah. But what we find is that, that some things happened. It didn't necessarily happen right in the moment, and Ham evidently had some qualities that deserve to be called out. But why is Canaan the one talked about? Well, because that's who the original audience knew. The people of the land they would soon occupy were not called Hamites. They were called Canaanites. They were from the man Canaan because he birthed the nation, if you will, he and his wife. And so also when... Noah says this, here's where the problem has, has come to the fore. Some pastors, particularly of the last two and a half to three centuries, but even before that, some pastors have taken this text, and they wrongly call it the curse of Ham. It's not the curse of Ham, it's the curse of Canaan. But what they have said is this. Well, the people that were birthed under Canaan or under Ham were dark-skinned peoples. Now, where they get that is beyond me. I have no idea because these are the people of modern-day Israel, the Holy Land. And if you track back these people, even to the earliest recorded movement of people, you do not find deeply dark-skinned people. Darker than me, of course. It doesn't take much to be darker than me. But what you actually find is... uh, Palestinian Jewish looking people. You find people of a more olive tone and you may say, yes, yes, yes. But some of the Canaanites even went down into Africa, (laughs) Egypt, goofball, Egypt, not Afrikaner in the way that you're thinking of a dark skinned African or what you would think of today as an African American wrong. But let me tell you, one of the most egregious sins that has ever been foisted on the American church and the American pulpit to somehow say that God ordained the Euro-African slave trade comes from this text. There are even some current commentaries. It was very prevalent in the Schofield Study Bible, which a lot of pastors used in the 20th century, unfortunately. And much of it is good, but this is an abomination teaching. And it's a teaching that says, you see... 
These darker-skinned folks are going to be in servitude. It is ordained by God, therefore our slavery is ordained by God. Our lack of interdating or intermarrying, people forget that Moses' wife Zipporah was a very dark lady. It's just lunacy. But the point is here, there has been an interpretation often called the curse of Ham that says dark-skinned people are created for servitude. J. Vernon McGee says, is the curse of Ham upon the dark races? It is certainly not. To think otherwise is totally absurd. The scripture does not teach it. Friends, if you have ever heard this passage used to justify racism, servitude, slavery of any kind, I'm here to tell you that the man or woman or whoever stood and made that claim is a heretic. They're absolutely wrong. God does not judge man based on the amount of melanin in his skin. He looks at the heart of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. And if you try to come to me or you out there, you that are full of hate, if you try to say to me that somehow a particular race is superior based on how dark or how light they are, then I am telling you that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has not penetrated your heart or saturated your life. You need to be saved because you don't know the Jesus that I know. And don't you dare take a Christian cross. Don't you dare take a Christian cross and make it a symbol of your bigotry and your hatred and your prejudice and your racism and say, this is what the word of God says. My God loves all people of all colors, of all races. They are all made in his image and according to his likeness. And if you use this to justify your racism, may the curses of Canaan come upon you and yours. I am sick of a bad hermeneutic that paints Christians as the perpetrators of falsehood. Listen, let me tell you, I don't care what your granddad or your good old homegrown pastor told you. If he said this is a justification for getting people in subjugation, he was wrong. Mark it down. God loves us all. God specifically was cursing a people that hated him. Almost all of this servitude comes out in the Bible. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 7 and many other places where clearly God said, you, Jewish people, Israelites, you are going to go take the promised land. And the Canaanites who have not loved me, they will be judged severely. But this does not continue on and on and on to say that now, because of a certain race, people are going to be in servitude. That simply is not true. And do you realize that these words of Noah are the only words ever heard from the mouth of a flood survivor in the whole narrative? It's fascinating that the only words spoken are the cursing and the blessing. And so it's very, very interesting here that the whole text ends with this refrain, and then he died. We'd seen it before in the genealogies, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And what we find is you better be right with God today because the refrain will be said of you. If Jesus himself does not rapture us out before, the refrain will be said of you. And then he died. And then she died. 
and you better be right with God. So let me review, and before I review, let me add one little truth here. The creation account makes it clear that all people are of equal worth. Slavery contradicts this principle. Those Old Testament and New Testament passages that acknowledge and regulate slavery, or really a proper term is servitude, the concept of an underroar, assumes that it is culturally taking, it, taking place in its culture as a regrettable aspect of sinful human society. God speaks of regulating, if you will, polygamous relationships, but God never ordained it nor said it was okay. In fact, he said it's an abomination. It lives because of sin, because of the wickedness of man's heart. This too is true of slavery and servitude. And what we find is that the practice of slavery in our own history as a nation, and tragically what continues around the world today, is egregious before God. And there are more slaves in 2023 than ever in the history of the world. And as a church, we should stand up and stand out. And I want you to know that our partners both here and near and far are taking a stand. We are giving money and resources to make sure that our precious children are not trafficked, that they're not put into the sex slavery markets of today. We are loving people well. Knoxville, unfortunately, is a hub for such abominations. And what I want you to understand is that Grace Baptist Church will stand with those who are disenfranchised and cast out because it is not the color of skin, but the content of a man's heart and his character that matters. And the gospel of Jesus and the brotherhood of the saints not only undermine, but totally obliterate the horrific practice of slavery. And the fact that the cross of Jesus Christ has been raised in time past, in some places and pockets even today, to say that this is of God is absolutely atrocious, and we should not stand for it. And I know there are some hateful people out there. For whatever reason you like to tune in here, I have no idea why. But I'm here to tell you, if you've got a problem with it, you're going to have to take it up with your maker one day. But we're going to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. In a post-Diluvian world, people and animals have a new relationship with one another. The value of life and image of God receive new emphasis and understanding. God establishes a new covenant with Noah, his descendants, and every living creature. And finally, people still stumble in this world, and the consequences of our choices may last many generations. As the worship band comes up, I'm just going to ask you, will you be a chain breaker? Will this generation be a generation that breaks the chains? I don't mean boomers or busters or Xers or millennials or Zers. I don't mean that. I mean, if you're alive and you're hearing my voice, will you be a chain breaker? See, we all have the same problem and it's sin. And that sin separates. But Jesus came and shed his blood to save us. Sin separates, but we can be saved through Christ and set on the path of sanctification. That means holiness. And we're not there yet. You're not there yet. God would call you to heaven if you were. But we are on the path of growth and learning and being more like Christ. And we're taking the word of God. And even though we stumble in many ways, we're saying, God, I want to be a chain breaker. I want to break the generational bonds and the curses that have enslaved people, literally and figuratively. God, I want to be the one to stand up and say, no, in the word of God, all people are equally valued and loved and have worth and dignity. And yes, there were pockets of people that stood against the one true and living God. But God, you took care of them. I don't have to. You did it. And so God, will you allow me to be a chain breaker? in a whole 
new world. Stand with me this morning. If you have been taught anywhere in accordance with what I've explained today, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry that you sit under such hate and heresy. And I'm just here to tell you that if you judge relationships, if you judge how people groups are to interact with with one another, even people, if you judge them based on the color of skin, that you are not right with God and you better straighten up. You better get right. And if you're some kind of closet racist and you still have hatred in your heart, you better take that to the Lord. You better confess that sin. You better be done with it. Because if you don't, if you regard iniquity in your heart, your prayers aren't making it any farther up than this ceiling. You better come clean with God. You could hide it from me, but you can't hide it from him. God loves us all, and salvation is available for us all. And if you want to come and trust Jesus today, pastors and counselors would love to help you do that. If you want to come and pray today about something or lay it before God, if you've maybe been taught this abomination of material, you've been taught this garbage of the curse of Ham, you can come and you can say, God, I'm sorry and I I repent of that if you ever even thought it was right. And I want to ask you to pray for our dear friends. Jeff and Debbie McElroy have been part of this church for more than two decades. They lead Forever Families and just led our marriage conference. They have a a wonderful son and daughter-in-law, Trevin and Lydia, Many of you by now have heard that they were all excited to welcome their first child into the world, but when Lydia went into labor just over a week ago, they had trouble finding the heartbeat, and she had to go through that labor and delivery and gave birth to Magnolia. But through that process, Magnolia was birthed into the arms of Jesus, not into this world. And so, um, obviously, this family has been heartbroken And of course, even as Christians, we have that gnawing sense of God, why? We try to love you, we try to honor you, we try to worship you, but why? Sometimes we don't get those answers this side of heaven, but what we need is to be a loving church family that will go to God on their behalf and pray for peace and strength and rest. And the love that they experience for Magnolia is because that life is a precious gift from God. And for whatever reason, he chose to call her home. But he's still a good, good father, as they all acknowledged when we were with them last week in the hospital. And so if you know and love Jeff and Debbie, I'd like you to pray for them too. You can come and do that. Uh, You can be where you are. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.